0: This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life 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 saving Well, today I'm overjoyed to uh, introduce and talk about and have a great conversation with my uh, friend and um, top innovator, particularly in uh, microbiome and all things immunology, Dr. Kathy Nagler. Uh, Kathy graduated with honors from Barnard College, Columbia University. She obtained her PhD from NYU Grossman School of Medicine and then did a postdoctoral fellowship at MIT. She was Associate Professor of Pediatrics within Immunology at Harvard Medical School prior to joining the University of Chicago in 2009. Dr. Nagler serves as a national and international um, leader in so many different roles, many of which are related to publication and teaching for the American Association of Immunologists, the Society for Mucosal Immunology and Federation of Clinical Immunology Societies. She was listed among Crane's Chicago Business Top 50 Women in 2018 and Notable Women in Healthcare in 2019 for her work with her startup company, Closer Bio. We'll get a chance to talk a lot about that in our conversation today. And then lastly, she was elected as a Distinguished Fellow of the American Association of Immunologists or AAI in 2020. Welcome to the show, Kathy.
1: Thanks so much, John.
0: Well, why don't we kind of jump right in, maybe starting first uh, around the, the general field where you're, you're really focused within it, but maybe as a as a starting point, um, you can talk a little bit about the, the word microbiome, what it means, and then we can kind of move from there and think about how you translate some of that science into products that can help patients.
1: Sure. So in the last 15 years or so, we've come to understand a lot about the trillions of microbes that occupy All of our mucosal surfaces, that is, all of the parts of our body that have communication with the outside world, as well as our skin. Prior to 15 years ago, we didn't have a way of identifying those microbes because all of the methods that we use were dependent on being able to culture them in vitro. The, the initiation of culture-independent methodologies have allowed us to sequence those microbes and start to understand the products they produce and how they influence our health and disease.
0: And, you know, when you kind of break down um, why this matters and why that understanding is important to think about, you know, by understanding what you just described, what is is the application of the knowledge that can ultimately benefit society?
1: So these microbes outnumber the cells in our body by at least 1.5 to 1. They affect virtually all physiological processes. So it's really essential that we understand how they interact with our body cells and how they are contributing to the increasing prevalence, particularly of chronic non-communicable diseases like food allergy, inflammatory bowel disease, autism, obesity, all of which are increasing and all of which have been linked to the composition of the microbiome. So what seems to have happened is that as we've moved into the 21st century, we've changed our lifestyle in a way that's depleted protective populations of bacteria. So understanding What these bacteria are will help us develop strategies to bring back at least their function, if not the population that was present before.
0: And, you know, if you then break that down further, another term we utilize a lot, you know, in the podcast is translational science and translational research. So if you go one step further, based on that body of knowledge that, um, uh, you and your team have accumulated over that you know last couple decades uh, has led to key insights that you're describing. With those insights, can you talk about the notion of translational science from the academic setting, you know, toward uh, you know, moving down and maybe even into the the development of applications that arise from that those insights?
1: Sure. So in our academic work, we were able to use notobiotic mouse models. That means we were able to take mice that are germ-free, that have no microbial population at all, introduce particular defined populations of bacteria, and identify at least one group of bacteria, the clostridia, that are protective against allergic disease. Once we knew that, we were able to then look at what the clostridia produce. One of their dominant products is butyrate, a short-chain fatty acid. Short-chain fatty acids are produced in our bodies by these bacteria, by the fermentation of dietary fibers in our food. We can't digest those fibers without these bacteria. So stepping back, one of the reasons we think we have the increasing prevalence of these non-communicable diseases is because we're consuming much, much lower quantities of dietary fiber than previous generations did because we're in a fast food, highly processed food culture. So the at translational application is how do we restore these fiber-loving bacteria and increase their ability to make these products? Or how do we create drugs that deliver these products to protect against these increasing prevalence of these non-communicable diseases.
0: Yeah, very very interesting and, and and so in a way in in recognizing that that the diet has changed in the last century leading to then these new non-communicable diseases. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. Um, you are you've identified maybe a, a couple different pathways where we could begin to uh, solve that problem by restoring the the gut barrier function um, either through a drug or you know, uh, uh, prebiotics, probiotics, is that kind of what you're suggesting?
1: Yes, so um, one approach is increasing the the consumption of dietary fiber, right? That will definitely help increase this population of bacteria and restore, protective barrier function. So what seems to be at the root of all of these diseases is that um, the function of the epithelium that lines the digestive tract has now um, allowed constituents of the lumen, bacterial products, or intact food proteins and food allergy to gain access to the systemic circulation where they can induce an anaphylactic response. If we can close the door and limit access of those products or proteins to the systemic circulation, we can start to impact disease prevalence.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like, again, from a, maybe a layperson's perspective, an in, um in, in describing what what you're saying and maybe how I understand it myself too, being being a layperson would be that you know you've got this new new generation you know of individuals that you know have um, you know a, a gut barrier that's damaged or it's a, it's eroded or it's it doesn't have all of the properties that the previous generations had, let's say generally. And in order to um, you know solve problems with food allergy or other diseases arising from that gut barrier dysfunction. There are different methodologies that can be used to try to resolve and rebuild rebuild the barrier in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about it from an image, uh, you know, to try to, you know, uh, articulate the words, you know, to the listener. You know, you think about the, your, your gut, there's this lining. And if that lining is is in disrepair or it's uh, not fully complete, then stuff gets through the lining and goes into the bloodstream and into the, uh, into the system. And that's not supposed to happen. And, but when it does, it causes really bad things. Like you said, in food allergy, it could uh, re- result in death through anaphylaxis. So if you can strengthen and almost like recoat the <laughs> the gut, and I know I'm using the wrong words here, but if you could just rebuild the gut, um, then you would close everything off and um, reduce the risk or prevent that from happening. Do I Did I describe that yes. generally right?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. So there's... There's different strategies to to doing that, as you suggested. One would be to try to restore the bacterial populations themselves. And there are many biotech companies that are doing that, or even transferring fecal material. And there are companies that are doing that. The problem with fecal transplant is that it's, to my view, um, too dangerous because we have emerging pathogens that have reservoirs and feces. Now we have COVID, which is as has a reservoir in the feces. So there's too many things we don't know about fecal transplants to give them to um, a, a healthy individual who's not in a life-threatening situation. Creating defined populations of bacteria is a better approach, but that has challenges too, because When you have a complete microbiota, even though it's a dysbiotic microbiota, it's not a healthy microbiota, it doesn't have the constituents that are ideal for a healthy barrier, it's still a complete microbiota. So it's hard to introduce new members. There's no space for them the way some groups have tried to get around that is by treating with antibiotics to create space but treating with antibiotics is part of what got us into this mess in the first place yeah. because they've depleted populations important populations of bacteria so a strategy the strategy we've taken is to identify some key bacterial products and deliver find ways to deliver them to the parts of the GI tract where they've been depleted and where they need it.
0: That's great. And that is kind of the way you rebuild that that gut barrier yes. um, in, this, in this illustration. Well, you know, maybe stepping way back, you know, what brought you to the field of science to begin with? What early on in your journey, you know, um, heading into college, did you always know you wanted to be a scientist? Was this always the field that you wanted to pursue? Maybe walk us through um, what what some of your uh, decision points were along the way that led you to kind of pursue this path?
1: So you'll be surprised to learn. I consider myself a creative. What I enjoy about science is creativity and discovery. When I my first year in high school, I was actually an art student, hmm. and I was accepted to the a competitive high school of art and design in new york and i turned it down and went to a, a traditional high school instead and after one year of art and at the same time taking biology i realized that um it wasn't art it was biology and that that was a creative field too right that that's some place where there's a lot to discover and if you are willing what I like about what I do is that I've moved into a lot of different areas and haven't been afraid to do that. So um, most recently, working with the engineers at the School of Engineering has been a, a completely new approach for me. And of course, cluster bio is uh, the capstone event of my career. So doing a lot of different things has, has satisfied my, my desire for constant creativity.
0: Well, and that's interesting, too, because, you know, I um, I would describe myself as an entrepreneur, but I would say my dominant characteristic of why I love entrepreneurship is creativity, to create, to build, put yes. things together, to adventure in a way. Uh, and, and that involves taking some risks. There's some unknowns. But maybe you could walk us through your journey in bringing together your artistic skills, your scientific skills, and then the thought process that went into the creation of Closter Bio. How did that come about? And what were the drivers that ultimately kind of caused you to get that off the ground um, as a way to continue your art, if you will?
1: So um, I think this, the, the origin story of Closter Bio is a particularly uh, good one. I was... By the time I came to the University of Chicago, I had I had been working um, since graduate school on trying to understand how we maintain tolerance to dietary antigens, basically why we're not all food allergic. Why do we not respond to the food that we eat? And then I started working in inflammatory bowel disease, animal models, um and trying to understand the response. Inflammatory bowel disease, when I started, was thought to be an autoimmune disease. Once we understood more about the huge population of bacteria that live in our guts, we came to understand that it's actually a reaction against the bacteria in our guts, that the commensal bacteria, the, the bacteria that are supposed to be there, and, and that the autoimmune response is secondary to that. Then I moved into food allergy because I was interested in the two major populations of antigens that are present in the gut, food proteins and bacteria. And I was fundraising with the University for a Food Allergy Center for the University of Chicago, and Dave Bunning, uh, a philanthropist, uh, said, I was telling him, he's, he's very knowledgeable about uh, about the science around food allergy. I was telling him about our work and telling him how at that time some companies were asking to use our animal models to test their drugs. And he said, why don't you start your own company? And I had never considered that. And that, as you know, is not um, really part of the culture, was not at the time part of the culture of the University of Chicago. And... I said, okay, uh, we can consider that. And then the person from the development office that I was working with introduced me to you, and we together went to the dean's office to talk about um, starting a company in an academic lab. And the dean initially, as you remember, wasn't wasn't a big fan, mm-hmm. but came around to it, and then you know came around. Then he turned completely. 360, and became a big enthusiast for it. And as the engineering school, the engineers are naturally entrepreneurial. They want to bring their work to real life impact. Right. As they came on board, entrepreneurship started to thrive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great, and I remember it very well. Uh, and and I think the um, some of the other features of the of that were I re- recall the discussion around the fact that. Your body of work, you know, had created you know the, the way to, to study and analyze you know mechanisms and through these, as you've described them, the, the notobiotic mouse model that, that you um, uh, employed and, and published and are really world renowned for your work in, in that area. I think it's really important to underscore that for our audience that you know we have in the room here a world-renowned expert in this field um, leveraging some of that science. But the work you had was able to kind of test, your hypothesis but you needed a partner you needed something to be testing in your model in a way and that was a, it had to be a drug and the 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 solution to that then of course was to partner with Jeff Hubble your co-founder uh, a scientist who is uh, makes things he he's an engineer he makes biomaterials and in his case he was an expert and is an expert at making uh, polymer based delivery tools that in the case of closer bio, you always knew that if you could bring butyrate to the gut at the right place in the body, that it would repopulate and rebuild the barrier, right? Yes. So go back to our earlier illustration, it would rebuild the barrier. But any attempt to deliver butyrate, even though everybody knows knew in science that uh, butyrate, you know, is a uh, it, it's a natural metabolite that we all have. But in uh, uh, patients that suffer from food allergies or other diseases of the gut, they, they don't have the appropriate amount. You you'd think, all right, we'll just swallow some butyrate. But the challenge there is that butyrate dissolves very quickly. It has you know a bad taste, a bad smell. Anyway, long story short, Jeff was able to kind of wrap those into you know. Uh, nanomaterials uh, nanomaterials that could deliver almost like a strategic missile, you know, to the part of the gut. So what we had at the time then was, now you do have the base of a company. You you're not just going and saying, here's a model. Test any of your molecules that you own, um, biotech company uh, or a pharmaceutical company out there. You had your own proprietary product that you were developing yes. coming out of that to yes. begin. Yes. And what were your thoughts, you know, kind of once that happened? What was your feeling as you uh, began to realize that you were moving from, you know, a purely academic mode to this world of entrepreneurship?
1: It's very exciting because, you know, I spent 35 years curing mice. So the chance to cure people <laughs> was really something different. Yeah. And also for me, uh, the, the language of entrepreneurship took. Uh, there was some growing pains there. You know, when I first started, I remember we were preparing pitch decks, and John Colson, the first uh, COO working with us, said, "You know, I'm talking to people and they don't understand this pitch deck." So I said, "Oh." I will just add more science to it. And so I added more and more science. And that was, you know, when he came back from the business school, they said, no, we want less and less science, simpler and simpler. So we really had to be taught how to present our work to a non-science audience and in a way that would be understandable to investors in a way that would motivate them to invest, which is a totally, totally different kind of presentation than an academic presentation.
0: Yeah. And when I think about it, though, stepping back in many ways, even as an academician, you always have to be highly effective at bringing resources to your lab. But the means of those resources, where they come from, on one end, an academic lab is funded from usually from grants from the National Institutes of Health or whatever funding body is interested in the work that you're carrying out. Um, On the other hand, when you're going to raise money um, from venture capitalists and public investors, uh, it's a different source and a different audience in, in, in what you've just described. It's a it's a different language but at the crux of it too is there a, it was there a familiarity or an understanding that look for us to keep pushing this program forward even in the entrepreneurial you know venture model that we were going to have to tell the story somehow
1: yes yes yeah. so it uh, once once i underst- understood what the investors needed to hear it was easy to adapt the story to a format that was that they could ap- appreciate. So I think telling telling the story, and for me, the academic work and the um, company work are all pieces in this in the same puzzle. Mm-hmm. So, and we can iterate back and forth between what we learn in the company and what we learn in the academic lab. And that's been probably the most rewarding aspect of of it for me to be able to go back and forth and. And enhance our understanding more and more um, at the basic level, at how we can translate this, and finally, a building a drug that we can take to the clinic.
0: So are you saying that, in many ways, the fact that you did kind of move down that company creation path where the uh, product and opportunity is moving toward the clinic has enhanced your academic research? Would you say that's, that's oh, yes. true?
1: Oh yes, because well, it's enhanced my academic research in that my future goals I think will uh, will still be translational. Mm-hmm. If even if they may not involve uh, new companies, mm-hmm. but we we have to in this current funding environment think about our work, the translational impact of our work. You know, there's going to be less and less funding available for for pure. Um, basic science work that has no clinical translational relevance, and there's so many challenges, that exciting challenges that we can address, especially in the microbiome field. That that's the that's the new frontier. I mean, we know, I think we know one percent of what there is to know about the microbiome. So that, that's wide open for discovery.
0: And where do you think that will take us? So I know um, the, the, the range of uh, possibilities, we've focused a lot of our conversation so far on diseases of the gut or, or, or related to, to those uh, types of uh, diseases, but where do you think the microbiome has application, you know, beyond that, like you said, the tip of the iceberg? Where, where, where might we find a future for the microbiome and what other diseases might uh, benefit from our knowledge of the microbiome.
1: So a, a big one that that comes to mind is neurological diseases. There's a lot of interest in the role of the microbiome in autism, in Parkinson's disease, in multiple sclerosis. There's also an understanding that the composition of your microbiome affects the res- your response to drugs. So people on checkpoint inhibitors for cancer treatment. Depending on their micro, the efficacy of those checkpoint inhibitors vary from patient to patient, and that was shown to be related to the composition of their microbiome. So if you can identify what part of the microbiome enhances the efficacy of those checkpoint inhibitors, you can make cancer treatments work better or work for more people. So the, the possibilities are really endless because it, its impact is so far-reaching on our wonder, wonder, wonder. physiology.
0: Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions, to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting-edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success there's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Back to the kind of those early days with the company, what were some of the um, uh, sentiments around uh, the campus uh, knowing that you were getting this company going? Um, Did you uh, get comments from your colleagues or others that were hearing that you were getting the company going? And what what was the feeling like? Um, Because in many ways within the university, um, although the environment has changed and evolved uh, in the last uh, several years to embrace engineering and, and applied science and entrepreneurship, you know, in those early days of getting closer bio off the ground, um, you know, you were a pioneer. Uh, what were, if any, were there any uh, feelings you had around uh Support that you were getting from colleagues that were saying, "Oh, that's pretty cool. I I, I want to learn more about that." What What was the feeling at the time?
1: So I think there was some colleagues that that thought it was pretty cool, particularly the young people. Young people, definitely. I think most of the young, new um, junior faculty. See themselves having startup companies. And now that that's a possibility at the University of Chicago, and particularly now that they have portal innovations to work with, many more of them will. But UChicago has a long standing culture in valuing theory over practice mm-hmm. and evalu- uh, not valuing applied science and evaluating the life of the mind and theoretical uh, analysis. So, and the, there are still plenty of people that have that point of view and are not interested in, in entrepreneurship. So I aligned myself with the School of Engineering, which is very uh, eager to make impact by developing new products, new methods, new, you know, in all different ways, um, approach the real world with solutions.
0: And, you know, if you follow on to kind of present day with Closter Bio, um, it's been an amazing story. I mean, some of the insights that have been gained, but maybe even um, equally, if not more importantly, you know, that original, you know, molecule that uh, Jeff and you collaborated around to kind of kick clip. Closter bio off the ground is still going um, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of where the company stands right now what are and what are some of the new challenges I mean entrepreneurship is again always about creation and risk and people saying no or slow down what are what's been the current state of the affairs with Closter bio and some of the um, recent accomplishments that you've maybe learned more about and are further developing your entrepreneurial mind, and other challenges that you see at this stage?
1: So um, it was slow going. The animal models are in inherently slow going. and um, But the point we're at now, I think we've reached, uh, we've really reached the peak of, of, of our efforts. So we have... Um, We've developed this platform. The the my cells that that Jeff created are a uh, metabolite delivery system. Our first metabolite is butyrate, but we have others standing on deck, ready to be conjugated to the polymer system to create new drugs. So it's a platform. That's the first big benefit.
0: We have and platform the, meaning it can go after you know disease of the gut or. You know, other metabolites could be conjugated to go after uh, neuro neuro uh, degenerative diseases yes. or other neuro Yes. Type.
1: The pla- the synthesis, chemical synthesis is very flexible, so there's really an unlimited number of metabolites that we can that we can. It's a we call it a plug and play module, mm-hmm. plug into the linker on the polymer to create a new drug. So now that we have that, we understand how to stably make the polymer, how to, you know, all of that work done with manufacturing, that making the next drug will be much, much quicker, much, much easier. Mm-hmm. So that's a big accomplishment. We just had our patent issued for the creation, the composition and matter of that polymer for short fatty acids. We have terrific animal model data in food allergy. I think In a therapeutic mouse model of food allergy, that's the best data I've I've seen in my career, showing that the drug butyrate attached to our polymer completely protects against an anaphylactic response upon peanut challenge, where sodium butyrate does nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So the data is, preclinical model data is very compelling. We're moving now into preclinical models of, of colitis. We have efficacy there, too. We've written this all up in a publication that's just about to be accepted. And we're closing on our Series A round of funding. So as I told you earlier, you know, Pinocchio has become a real boy. <laughs> and we now can build out the company, move move the move out of my lab and move here to, to space at Portal, which is very attractive to the graduate students, the, the Portal model is um, the ideal for our graduate students. They want to be in a space like this. They want, it, they want to, they're very interested in startup companies. So I think um, we've passed a lot of the hard parts. Of course, the, the fundraising is, is, is always a challenge. But, you know, we just we just keep going with it.
0: Yeah. No. And congratulations on the on the Series A. Very exciting. And, you know, having been a part of the story really since the beginning, I'm, I'm really excited about that transaction because uh, like you, I believe it'll be transformational. It will um, take, you know, all of the work that's been accomplished so far and the risk that's been removed to really get the product into the clinic um, and also to Start to build out the plug and play platform and see what other applications um, come into play. And the exciting part of that too is you're building you'll build the team and they need space and they can collaborate with other partners. So I think it'll be a really interesting, and exciting next phase to watch the company continue to grow and flourish. Do you have any thoughts or expectations around kind of what what happens next, or maybe another way of coming at that question? Were there any learnings that you've encountered in, even in the in the recent uh, move to get the product from concept uh, toward you know uh, an IND with the FDA and and being able to then take the product into patients. Um, you know, building out our team in the drug development arena. What did you learn, or what was maybe surprising to you in that phase of the of the process? Um, I know we often remark about the different people involved in that team, different sets of expertise, toxicology, drug formulation, many different ranges of things that maybe you weren't thinking about when you first started the company. Any thoughts there?
1: Not only was I not thinking about it, I was clueless. I had no idea that we needed, I mean, as you know, we have 10 10 to 12 people meeting every two weeks for this, the pre-IND march. I had no idea of the kind of, of expertise that we needed, that we needed Manufacturing toxicology. I remember sitting one day at a meeting where we were talking about exactly how we were going to create sachets, how we were going to uh, dry the polymer and formulate it into sachets. An hour's discussion of how exactly that was going to be done, and think, wow, I never thought I would be in a meeting like this, and and. Um, so all of it, all of it was a learning experience. I had no idea how um, how a drug is developed. And without Portal, there's no way we could have done it because that expertise was all um, wrapped around us when we joined Portal. Before that, it was really a struggle.
0: Well, you know, if you look at um, some of the elements of, you know, what happens next and you build out the team, there'll be new encounters. But I think one of the most exciting things that we all, you know, are aspiring to is seeing the product in in patients and ultimately benefiting patients first in ulcerative colitis and then uh, in food allergy as well as we've we've talked about. Um, If you think about uh, the next generation, you keep talking about, you know, younger faculty, um, do you think that that mindset will mean that there will be more um, academic entrepreneurs in the next generation? And how can universities recognize this and and position themselves to uh, attract those types of individuals, do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. That this is what um, er- almost every junior faculty person I've talked to wants to do. And it, it's been common for some time on the West Coast and in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, Portal innovation is putting Chicago on the map in being able to do this too. I mean, it wasn't possible at you Chicago or in Chicago um, until Portal came along. But um, the young people that I talk to are all. They're raring to go with starting startup companies. You have to tell them, wait a minute. First, you have to get tenure, and then then, then yeah. you can then you can start putting all of your efforts into a to a startup company because it's a lot of work. But some of them have have, have are already making forays into that into that arena. So I think because it's so gratifying, right, being able to take your bi- basic science work and apply it to the treatment of disease if there's a way you can do that mm-hmm. and if you have the support system to do that.
0: Yeah, but I'll ask you frankly though. I mean, it's challenging. It's hard. You know, I mean, we've talked a lot along the journey and it's, you know, sometimes it's there it, you feel like you're getting punched in the face with the challenges that come your way. Do you, would you recommend, to, you mentioned the step of getting tenure first, but would you recommend to the next generation that it's a path that they should consider pursuing?
1: Yes. Now now, um, now that we have the portal structure, yes. The, with the structure we had previously, I, I don't think there was enough of, for pharmaceutical companies, there wasn't enough of that support system available Um now everything is in place, so, and also the wet lab space, the environment. So it, now I think the the road forward should be a lot faster and um, easier because there's just the expert the expertise. I mean, a, one of many mistakes that I made when I started was starting um, the first people I hired to work under the sponsored research agreement to. To test the drugs were new college graduates. They were terrific, but you, I, what I've learned in part of this process, at every step of the way, you need senior people with years and years of expertise if you want to move forward in a timely fashion.
0: What um, if we kind of uh, maybe think about talent and welcoming others, you know, next generation faculty building the talent pipeline as we think about not just to Bio, but other companies like it in a given ecosystem, I think talent will be a really important, as we know, element to the success of these companies, as you've rightfully pointed out. I mean, the experience, the knowledge, and the capabilities of the talent that will fill the ranks of these companies um, you know, is, a, is, is a very important piece of the puzzle. Can you talk a little bit about how we might avail ourselves to more diverse talent you know you're you're a woman leader i mean you you've, you're recognized for it as well and you know the barriers that you have faced and the challenges that you've had to overcome um and endure are are far greater than any that i've had to face on on my my path i'm certain of that and so how do we find a way to recognize the importance of diversity as we look to build the next generation of these companies in Chicago and beyond. From your perspective, do you have any insights or thoughts around how we might create the right environment for that to to flourish?
1: I I think just by um, encouraging people to chase their dreams and giving them a chance to do it, giving them the, you know, unfortunately, with the funding situation for the last 10 or 20 years, Has been so regimented that there's been uh, creativity has been has been hampered. That's why I appreciated that I was able to get part of my money, my the money in my portfolio from philanthropy, which freed me up to do experiments, whatever experiments I really wanted to do. To you know, look at the data and say where is this going to take me instead of you know go down a checklist of specific aims that I have to I have to. Follow to get the grant renewed because science doesn't work that way. Science um, doesn't follow the specific games. Mm-hmm. You do an experiment and it te- ask, you answer one question and you get 10 new ones. So freedom to follow those questions, that's what any scientist is going to want to do. The young people want to have that freedom they don't want to be hampered by constantly applying for money they want to be able to do the work and this kind of environment is so we there's a lot of talk recently about how there's a dearth of postdocs that that graduate students are not wanting to do postdocs because they this is very low pay there's no security so that says that to me that the system has to change. The academic system, not not this system, is this is attractive to them. They want to have a good life work life balance. They want to be able to do work that has impact, real world impact, and they still want to be able to work at the bench. So they really get all of all of the things that they want. Startup companies are you know, have some instability to them, but they could always move to another company. So it, that's not really restricting their opportunities.
0: Yeah. So, so talent attraction is creating an environment that allows kind of freedom to operate, freedom to create, freedom to be the, the, your best self in, in yes. a way. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think that's great. And I, I definitely uh, agree with that. And I think, you know, the stimulating that type of environment, not just the physical environment, but, you know, how you create that community. That's something we really try to pay attention to at Portal Um in recognizing that in a young ecosystem you have to create those connections the dots need to connect and more of that is happening but there's still a lot more work to do but creating those types of connections starts to reduce the risk for talent to enter onto that pathway the next generation to move forward in many ways because the road starts to get to get paved and and so I, i i agree with you there back to the point around kind of um Research grants and just the your uh, points around you know uh, graduate students maybe going to industry before postdoc. What does that mean for the research infrastructure? Um, but isn't you know they they're going to have to raise money in the outside or they're going to have to raise money on the inside? thinking about raising money from a grant perspective, it sounds like there's a translational element to all grants going forward. And maybe just defining for the audience to maybe in this context, translational being, you know, money's going in to do breakthrough basic research and science, providing new insights and discoveries that you can publish papers on. But the grant funders now are saying that what's going to come out of that work that's going to help society, because usually the funding body the NIH it's taxpayer funds so right. they they want to know how are we helping the taxpayers in the end and you know do you agree with that that more of the grants that will get funded are going to look more like the kinds of things you need to do to get venture venture capital meaning you have to explain that this research is going to lead to you know some type of outcome that would be of benefit to society or a patient population.
1: Yeah, but right now it's it's mostly lip service because NIH is not. So the kind of some of the kind of work you have to do for drug development is 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 a little bit of drudgery, right? You have yeah. to test the same uh, right, thing right. over and over and over again, and they they don't. And and you have to test things you have to do work that's not hypothesis driven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they don't appreciate that. They don't fund that. And, and they consider it risky. They want very low risk, but very low risk is very low innovation. Mm-hmm. So if they really want to fund innovative work, and then there's no mechanism once you, if you do have something that's translational that comes out of an NIH grant, how are you going to Actually translate that. Then you're going to have to do a startup company, yeah. and that's unrelated to the NIH grant. And the other problem with the NIH grant is the funding rate is still around 10 percent.
0: Right, right.
1: So you have to write so many, and that that I think is a big turnoff to the young people to see their advisors, you know, spending their time. I had one grant a couple of years ago that I had to resubmit five times. You know how. Can you think of anything more boring than rewriting the same grant <laughs> yeah, <laughs> five yeah, times? Yeah,
0: yeah, I see your point. Yeah, no, and and I think you, you you're you also your comment around kind of the nature of the work that would go into the company, you know, getting you know a drug, you know, toward the toward and into the clinic. There's some repetitive nature to that. It's not necessarily hypothesis driven. That's beyond kind of where you see the sweet spot of what's happening in academic research. So I, I better understand that based on your description because you know you look at to Bio right now and we've just, just talked about the march to the IND. The IND is an investigational new drug. And for any drug to go into human uh, patients, into phase one clinical trials, um, a company needs to conduct a whole battery of tests. You need to be able to make the compound safely under what's known as good manufacturing practices. So it's very high quality, very pure, well characterized. A full dossier of information will need to be supplied to the FDA before you go into a human. And that molecule needs to be tested in many different types of in vitro and uh, in the Petri dish and in animal studies starting with mice and rats moving into larger species as you get into the human population. I'm going through this because I think it's important for our audience to understand that even before a drug has a chance to make an impact on a patient, an inordinate amount of work and time goes into characterizing and proving to the FDA that in the animal studies you've conducted, you've demonstrated that it's safe enough to take into a human, and shows some signals that if you do take it into a human, it might have a positive impact in the disease that you're ultimately trying to trying to impact. And so it's a it's a it's a major undertaking, critical, needs a lot of money as well. But I think your point's well taken in the sense that that's not necessarily the purview of the academic grant. You know, now you're moving toward these types of studies that start to move outside the university. So you, you need both, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, it's not the purview of the academic grant yeah. at all. So yeah. one one leads into the other. Mm-hmm. But there that doesn't mean that there are things that you can't learn in the in the company setting that informs right. the academic setting and and the other way around.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That's I I I, I took that to heart when you mentioned that that earlier that the the, your your science academically is is being sharpened and maybe even heightened and improved based on the insights you're getting through um, the journey of that first you know endeavor and the and and the lead molecule and what you've learned in that regard. it's opened up new new questions probably to to carry on your your work and maybe you know as we begin to wind down the interview, where are you going? What's next for you as you think about the. Your academic uh, research pursuits. What should we? What should our audience be looking for next from Dr. Kathy Nagler, as it relates to you know your your area of of research? Um, any areas that you think are important for us to pay attention to from a, a breakthrough perspective in the field of microbiome? But just tell us more about where you're aiming uh, your next sets of experiments. I guess.
1: So of course, um, I I continue plan to continue to work with Cluster bio as it moves forward into the clinic but in the academic lab mechanism everything is all about mechanism and that's f- important for the drug development as well exactly what how are these metabolites interacting with the immune system which cells are they interacting with what mediators do they elicit what are the other players in this process and how How exactly does butyrate, for example, strengthen the barrier? What are all the cells involved? What are all the molecules involved? And better understanding that is an academic question, but also um, will strengthen our understanding of how to apply the drug in clinical settings. And then there are thousands of microbial metabolites that have not even been discovered yet. So we have a, a different pathway that is unrelated to butyrate that's, that we've recently discovered that's also barrier protective. So we wanna characterize, continue to characterize that pathway. We've become very interested in two other big populations of metabolites, the metabolites produced from dietary tryptophan and bile acids and how they interact with the immune system. So basically, we're going to be continue to, to for the foreseeable future, continue to work on, on bacterial metabolites, how they impact immunity at a basic science level. First, at the cellular and molecular level, and then apply that to disease. And hopefully, um, identify new metabolites that can be put on the cluster bio. Uh, introduced the cluster bio platform mm. to make new drugs.
0: Yeah, interesting. That's great. That's exciting. And we'll be continuing to watch your work with interest. Um, I guess my closing question is, you know, when you go back in time, and um, as you described, you know, your decision in, in the beginning, uh, you started out as an artist, uh, you elected to drive deeply down the biology pathway. Um, would you make the same decision uh, if, if you looked at it and had the chance to look at it again?
1: Tell um, my graduate students, I can genuinely say that I'm just as excited about science as I was as a graduate student. So I don't have um, any plan to retire because I still wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, "This, I got an idea for a new experiment. I, I have to, you know, turn on the light and yeah. write it down." I'm just as excited as I was, you know, when I started. Yeah. So this has been a, a very, very rewarding career for me. And the opportunity to uh, start a company and bring it this far mm-hmm. has has been my capstone project, and has been really um, a, a great experience, a great learning experience, and a great um, experience in being able to take take our work to the next level and bring it to the treatment of human disease. I really believe we're, go- we're going to develop a drug that is going to help people with food allergy and IBD.
0: Well, and I, I, from from speaking on behalf of society, I think we've all benefited from your pursuit in moving in that direction and, you know, how you've already impacted, you know, thousands of lives with regards to your research and hopefully many more as we try to move the molecule into the clinic and help patients with food allergy and colitis and hopefully even even beyond that. So, you know, I'm very... Uh, honored to know you. I'm very thankful that we have our, our friendship. Um, and uh, first and foremost, you know, you're you're a, you're a great artist,
1: <laughs> and <laughs> I, it's been
0: a joy talking to you today.
1: Same here, and I have to thank you, John, because you you've been with this Venture from the very, very beginning at the first meeting in the dean's office. And so I I can't think of a a better person to have taken this journey with. Yeah, and
0: I remember I was being called into the dean's office and it sounded familiar. You know, I was always getting called into the dean's (laughs) office in high school as well. And I was like, is he going to pinch my ear or what's going to happen? Because I was not ready for the academic uh, world. I was coming from business. And so that was one of the first early meetings I had in the dean's office. And uh, as we know, you know, um, we're very fortunate. That you know, if you look at today, I mean, University of Chicago is becoming more of a powerhouse in this area, and largely because of you know, um, you know, entrepreneurs like you, scientists like you, others that have joined the the quest, but also the the, the leadership team and, and moving forward and supporting and and, and leaning in in this direction and, and finding ways to to support this type of activity to make sure that um, these great ideas get out to the world and make an impact. So. Thanks for the time today. It was a real joy.
1: Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labrats2unicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing.
1: That is all goodbye.